Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is alive. That's what that means. It means the tomb is empty. And we believe that to be true. And if it's true, then what are the implications of it? Now, an implication is an inference or a conclusion that we arrive at. It's a consequence, a result, if you will. So what are the implications of the empty tomb? What does it mean to us if Jesus rose from the dead? What does it mean to us if Jesus is alive? How does it change things if Jesus is not just a dead body somewhere? How does it impact us if he's alive and well and seated at the right hand of the Father? So today, what I'd like to do is look at three basic realities that are true if the tomb of Jesus is indeed empty. So let's move right along. Number one, first of all, it means that God is the real deal. The first implication of the empty tomb is that God is real. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all the questions about the reality of God are answered. If Jesus rose from the dead, then God is the real deal. People have questioned the existence of God for, for many years, from the beginning, I suppose. Agnosticism, even atheism, are nothing new. But there is a wave of new atheists, led by the Christopher Hitchens, the Stephen Hawkings, and the Richard Dawkins of the world, and their books with titles like The God Delusion, The End of Faith, and breaking the spell. These new atheists are angry, almost militant against God and against Christianity in particular. They've worked hard to promote the idea that there is no God. Now one of the many arguments against God is the existence of evil. Why would God allow children to starve? Why do bad things happen? Why do natural disasters occur? If God is real, the atheist maintains, there would be no evil. Now what the atheist fails to realize is that the argument of evil actually helps make the case for the existence of God. After all, when you say there's evil, you're assuming there's good. And if there's good, there must be a moral law as a means to differentiate between good and evil. If there's a moral law, you're presuming a moral law giver. Because if there is no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. The assertion of the reality of evil actually establishes the fact that there's a God. Now there are a host of other proofs that God exists, the, the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, consistent laws of nature that point to a monotheistic God, laws of logic 
and mathematics that point to an orderly and organized God, information and intentionality that prove intelligent design, life and awareness. Where, where does that come from? Free will, objective morality, beauty, variety, pleasure. It all points to a transcendent God. It all points to a, to a being outside of us, beyond us. The tomb is empty because God raised Jesus from the dead. And the overt implication of that is that God is the real deal. Now, atheists don't want to believe that. Richard Lewentin is an evolutionary biologist and an atheist. And in 1997, he wrote an article, and I'm going to pull a quote from that article, and it, it was very telling. Reading this helps us to understand the mindset of the atheist. Now, I, I took this quote in its entirety because I wanted it in context. I, we have it up here. There's actually three screens of it that you'll see. I wanted you to see the whole thing. Now, my purpose here is to help you to grasp the mindset of the atheist. So read along with me. Our willingness to accept scientific claims, Lewentin says, that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science, Lewentin says, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories. Now, why would they do that? I inserted that part. He continues, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science, Lewentin continues, somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, in other words, presupposed adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism, Lewentin says, is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Lewentin continues, the eminent Kant scholar Lewis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. End of quote. Atheist scientists have a prior commitment to a materialistic philosophy that keeps them from following the evidence where it leads. According to Frank Turek, it's like, it's like a detective saying, there's no criminal in the basement, 
because I'm scared to go down there. And I believe this is similar to the logic of the average atheist on the street. He's not an atheist because he doesn't believe in God. He's an atheist because he doesn't want to be accountable for his actions. If God is the real deal, then he may have to answer for his behavior, make amends for his transgressions, and atone for his lifestyle. He's an atheist not because he believes the evidence tells him that. He's an atheist because he doesn't want to let a divine foot in the door of his life. Now, I have a very different set of suppositions. I believe at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured and that miracles can happen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes the magnificent truth that God is the real deal. A second implication of the empty tomb is that God is supernatural. If, if the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, then God supernaturally raised him from the dead. That means that he's beyond natural. He's outside of normal. He's, he's beyond natural. He, he, it means that, that God is supernatural. I cite miracles themselves as more evidence of a supernatural God. There are thousands documented, and we've witnessed them here. There are many recorded answers to prayer and scientific evidence pointing to miracles and pointing to the benefits of prayer. In a 1999 study published by the National Institute of Health, it divided 990 coronary care patients into two groups. 445 patients were prayed for daily, and 445 patients received no prayer. The patients had conditions ranging from heart attacks to heart disease to congestive heart failure. None of the patients knew that they were part of a study. Neither did their doctors. The results surprised some. One, one researcher said the patients who were prayed for just did better. Those who were prayed for needed fewer medications, fewer invasive interventions, and stayed fewer days in the hospital. So who is it we're praying to? We're praying to a supernatural God who hears from heaven and answers as he sees fit. And then there's the evidence of fulfilled prophecy of a supernatural God. The all-knowing, all-powerful God has fulfilled over 3,300 prophecies from the pages of Scripture. Many center around the person of Jesus Christ as Messiah. The place and the details concerning his birth, his lineage, his ministry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, his betrayal by a friend, how he was forsaken by his disciples and crucified, including a plethora of specific details about his suffering and death. There are prophecies about lots being cast for his garments, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and many, many more. There is a supernatural beyond nature force at work here. For these details to come to pass as foretold centuries ahead of time, there has to be 
someone outside of time, someone beyond time, someone who sees it all as though it's already happened. There must be a God who dwells in an eternal now. A God who knows the end from the beginning because he transcends time and space because he created time and space. And we believe this supernatural God put his stamp of approval on the life lived by his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He sanctioned his atoning work on the cross of Calvary by pouring life back into the body of the one who died on our behalf. The scriptures make the case that this supernatural God is the one who raised Jesus from the grave. Can you say amen to that this morning? Acts 2.24 says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Acts 2.32 says, This Jesus God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Acts 3.26, God, having raised his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Acts 4.10 says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hung on a tree. Acts 10.40, him God raised up, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Acts 30.13, Acts 13.30, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 13.33, God has fulfilled the same unto us in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Acts 13, 37. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Romans 4, 24. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up, Jesus from the dead. Romans 6, 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Romans 10, 9. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth and if you believe with your heart that what God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 6.14 God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. If the tomb is empty then we serve a supernatural God. And this supernatural God can heal your body. He can restore your marriage. He can forgive your sin. He can transform your soul. Even the ancient philosophers understood that everything in nature is guided by an external intelligence. They knew 
They understood the concept of a mover, a first cause. We call that ultimate first cause God. We know God is supernatural because intelligent design is evident in the more than three billion letter code written in the human genome. We see him in the order of the universe and in the variety of his creation. Did all this just happen? Did nothing create everything? Or is there a supernatural creator? We know God is supernatural because there's a moral code that comes from outside of us. We do not live by the survival of the fittest instinct. There's a morality from beyond us. It's not a, it's not a, if it's not, if it's not a moral code written on our hearts, if it's not a moral code that's written on our hearts, then it's just your opinion or my opinion. Who says it's right or wrong? And yet we all know it's wrong to torture babies. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you live, what culture you come from, we know it's wrong in our hearts. And my question is, who wrote that there? It's not just the survival of the species instinct, as the atheists would tell us. There are actually two voices that are speaking to us. If a man is drowning, one voice says, save yourself, protect yourself, don't take a risk. We could make the case that that's the survival of the species instinct. But there's another voice that's speaking to you. And that voice is the voice of moral obligation. What must I do to help this drowning man? Where does that voice come from? It's a moral code written in our heart by a supernatural moral law giver. We know God is supernatural by our experience. I cite scores of people in this very room at this very moment who would testify in a heartbeat of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. People who have had their lives turned upside down, been delivered from every form of bondage and had the very desires of their heart changed by an encounter with Jesus. People who have been born again, born of the Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb, redeemed from destruction, liberated from addiction, and forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. These are not people simply rehabilitated. These are people transformed. Not just reformed, they've been converted. Not just new behaviors, it's a new reason to live. It's not just turning over a new leaf, it's experiencing a new life in Jesus Christ. It's not just behavior modification. It's a new heart, it's a new mind, and it's a new hope. And let me tell you, let me tell you, that's supernatural. That's beyond me. That's beyond you. It's outside of human means and human power. It's beyond natural. It's supernatural. One of the implications of the resurrection is the supernatural power of the God who made us. 
It means that all things are possible. It means that there's nothing that he can't do. It means that your need is within his grasp. It means that he can heal you. He can restore you. He can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can empower you. It means that the God who parted the Red Sea can muddle through the chaos of your life and somehow bring order. It means the the one who healed the blind man can heal you. It means the God who created the world can make you new today. He's supernatural. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us so. And finally, the resurrection implies that God is eternal. If the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, then there's an eternal realm that he's no longer dead in. If Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised to something. He was raised to eternal life. If he he defeated everlasting death, then there must be everlasting life. That would mean that life doesn't cease after death. That would mean there's more to our existence than the 950 months that make up an average lifetime as we know it. If God is eternal, then we can begin to see the relevance of the words of the Apostle Paul, spoken in 1 Corinthians 15, when he said, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul says, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Another apostle, the apostle John, had a glimpse of eternity too. It's recorded in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 2. It says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You hear me? God will wipe away every tear from your eye. And there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, write, for these words are faithful and true. He said unto me, it's done. It's done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The tomb is empty. The implications are significant. Now, there are a number of simple proofs that the resurrection really happened. And as I bring this message to a close, allow me to list a few without much 
without much explanation. These are proofs that the resurrection really happened. First of all, there's a variety of sources that testify to the empty tomb. Many different people witnessed the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. He was seen on many separate occasions by many different people, including a group of 500 at one time, many of whom were still alive when the account of the resurrection was documented. And not everyone who saw the risen Christ was a believer at the time that they saw him. And, and they saw him over a span, over a period of 40 days. So there's a variety of sources that would testify. Number two, the preaching of the resurrection was almost immediately after the event itself. It makes no sense to preach the resurrection if the body of Jesus is still in the tomb. Number three, there was no veneration at the tomb of Jesus. There were at least 50 other grave sites in Palestine at the time of Jesus where followers of prophets and teachers would worship and honor the dead celeb. This was what they did. And yet there's no record of this at the tomb of Jesus. The most likely reason is Jesus was not there and they knew it. And most convincingly, number four, the dramatic life change of the post-resurrection disciples. Think about it now. There's no other plausible explanation for how they went from cowering in fear during the trial and crucifixion of Jesus to boldly proclaiming Jesus in the marketplace. Within days of the resurrection, Peter preached a sermon in the city square of Jerusalem that pointedly called out the people as the ones who crucified Jesus. What changed this man who just days earlier denied Jesus to a servant girl, not once, but three times? I maintain it was the resurrection. And think of this. All 12 disciples of Jesus died as martyrs except the Apostle John. John wasn't without his own grief. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. At one point he was lowered into a vat of boiling oil because of his testimony for Christ somehow survived. What motivation did they have for any of this if Jesus was dead? If Jesus was dead, they were duped by him. They followed him for three years, and it was a road to nowhere. This is what they feared during the crucifixion. So they, they hid. What could possibly have happened that turned them 180 degrees? What turned their hearts from fear to unbridled boldness? There's no other logical explanation for the dramatic life change of the followers of Jesus. The resurrection happened, and it all changed. Now it was worth it. Now there was something to follow again, a cause to buy into, something bigger than themselves, even to the point of martyrdom. It wasn't just a hopeless body in the tomb. Jesus was alive. This meant that everything he said was true. The empty tomb 
meant that Christianity wasn't about to end. It was just beginning. It meant sin was dealt with. It meant the grave was defeated. It meant death had lost its hold. And now the future could stretch far beyond the limitation of our mortal bodies. The implications of the empty tomb. These and other proofs established the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an actual historical event. It's not a It's not a fable from the past or a story just for kids. It really happened. And it's a game changer. So what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The resurrection means God is the real deal. Second, God is supernatural. Third, God is eternal. there's one more little implication in the empty tomb. It means that Jesus loves you very much. That's a cause not just worth dying for. It's a cause worth living for. And that's my challenge to you this morning. I love Resurrection Sunday. One of the reasons I love it is because we, we get some folks who don't always attend church. And I'm so glad that you're here. It gives me an opportunity, a hallowed, sacred opportunity to preach the gospel, to confront you with the reality of eternity, the truth of the word of God. And in this sacred moment here at the end of the message a few minutes before the dismissal I have an opportunity to ask you to contemplate this and to think about it and and one way that we do that sometimes is we just ask you to close your eyes and to bow your head and that just that just kind of closes out the distractions there's nothing magic about it it just kind of focuses you maybe on my words a little more and gives your neighbor some privacy. So if you'd just close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment, I'd just like you to contemplate some of the things that we talked about. If the resurrection is real, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? It means that God is real. And I know many have their doubts in the world that we live in. that tomb is empty, it means God is real. It also means that God is supernatural. Because that doesn't happen every day, does it? The power of the creator God raised Jesus from the dead. The body that was dead for three days returned to life. And then it means that he's eternal which means there's an eternity. And so at some point in our life, we have to decide whether or not we believe God. And today I'm giving you that opportunity to think about it. 
The sad truth is, is that some people never think about it. They live their life day to day. They may be acknowledged as a God, but they never thought about all this. They never thought about what it means. What are the implications? Today I want you to think about that. And ultimately the implication is this. We're lost in our sin. Each and every one of us were born in sin, the Bible teaches. And if you're anything like me, you fall short. I can promise you that. On my best day, I fall short. The good news is, and that, by the way, the, gospel, the word gospel means good news. So you and I fall short. The good news is, Jesus died for your sins. That's what the crucifixion is all about. That's what Good Friday is all about. He was crucified. He suffered. He died. He bled. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So the innocent Jesus gave his life for the guilty ones, you and me. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And the penalty was paid on the cross of Calvary. But the penalty for sin is eternal death. So Jesus was sentenced with our sin to eternal death. But something happened three days later. The ground began to shake. And a stone rolled aside. And Jesus emerged from the tomb. So on the cross he defeated sin on that resurrection Sunday morning, he defeated death and the grave. And now because he lives, you and I can live for all of eternity. So how do we get there? We have to receive him as Lord and Savior. At some point, we have to acknowledge him. Lord, I fall short. I'm a sinner. I can't earn heaven on my own. I need Jesus to cleanse me from my sin, to wash it away. And so I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my hope of salvation. The famous Bible verse is John 3.16. It says, Whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believes in him, will not perish. But that word believe doesn't just mean a mental assent. It doesn't just acknowledge that he is. It means that you actively depend on him. You trust in him. Your confidence for salvation is in him. It was back in 1983 when I sat in the same congregation you're sitting in today. I was in church not necessarily of my own volition. And the altar calls seemed like they lasted forever. And my heart would pound. And one day I gave it all to Jesus. One day I gave it all to him. And he changed me from the inside out. I was born again. And I want more than anything, I want that for you too. I don't know the circumstances of your being here today, but I believe it's a God thing. 
So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning, and you're like me back in 1983, you need Jesus. Would you slip your hand up? If you're not joining our church, when you slip your hand up, you're just saying, Tom, that sounds like me. I need Jesus. I need Jesus to forgive my sins. If that's you, slip your hand up. And I ask the rest of the church to pray. God bless you. I see that hand here in the front. Thank you. Someone else today. I see that hand in the middle section toward the back. Thank you, sir. Someone else this morning. Church, we pray. Would you pray that strongholds would be broken? That people would, would surrender? I see that hand right here in front of me. Bless your heart. God bless you. Someone else today. I see that hand in the middle. Thank you. Someone else today. We're going to dismiss in just a, just a moment. But I want to take one more second. I see that hand in the middle on this side. God bless you. Thank you. Someone else today. I don't want to let this moment pass. Someone else today. You need Jesus. Your heart's pounding. You're, you're hoping this moment comes to an end. Listen. If you just surrender. You just surrender. I see that hand in the middle. God bless you, that little one. God bless you. I'm so glad I waited for you. I see that hand. God bless you. Lord, these folks have responded. They recognize their need this morning. What a great place to be to know that we need Jesus, to know that we can't do it on our own, to surrender, to give it all, to offer it up to you and say, Lord, take my life. Do what you will. So we repent of our sins. We turn from our, from our life. and We begin to, to seek your face. We begin to trust you and your, your will and your way. And we discover it's a road that leads to life. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. And the Bible talks about a narrow road that leads to life. Thank you, Lord, for those that responded today in Jesus' name. Amen. When service is over,